0: You're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 121, The Biology of Pain. I'm your host, James Fodor. In this episode, we're going to look at the biology and psychology and neuroscience behind the perception of pain. So this may not necessarily be the most pleasant topic, although I think it is a very interesting and important one. So specifically, I'm going to talk about the underlying mechanisms of pain, uh, transduction and uh, detection of uh, pain signals, so starting with the nociception and the transduction of those nociceptor signals through spinal pathways up to the central nervous system and the brain specifically. We'll then talk about the modulatory effects of chemicals such as opioids and how all of these different signals and inputs are processed by the brain to actually deliver the percept of pain. In doing so, we'll look at some interesting ideas and phenomena that are relevant, such as the, the phenomena of referred pain, psychogenic pain, and congenital insensitivity to pain. And I'll talk a little bit about how we actually construct these uh, perceptions or experiences of pain uh, in the cerebral cortex and some of the methodological difficulties with studying pain being a subjective experience. Recommended pre-listening is episode 63 on the nervous system, which will give some useful background, although probably not essential. All right, that all being said, let's make start and talk about what is pain. The standard definition that you'll find in these sort of introductions is taken from the International Association for the Study of Pain. They would know after all. They define pain as, quote, an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. End quote. Now, there are a few important aspects of this to note. One is that it is pain is defined as a sensory and an emotional experience. So it's not just an issue of what you sense. It's also related to one's emotional, and I would also add cognitive response and reaction to that, which we'll talk more about in a moment. Another aspect here is that it's associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So it's not always the actual experience of damage to tissue, but also the anticipation of that or even described in such terms, right? So we may describe pain in terms of like burning or throbbing or stabbing, even if there's no actual burn, throb or stab, right? That's the experiential side of what it feels like. Another key aspect to emphasize here is that pain is defined to be a subjective experience. That means that it is definitionally subjective. So by subjective here, what we mean is that it is necessarily Dependent, like to exist, on there being someone who experiences it. Of course, the fact that something is subjective doesn't mean that it isn't real, it just means that there has to be a subject, right? Someone who experiences the pain. And that's one of the things that makes it very difficult to study because really we can't study pain apart from relying on subject reports. Now, a lot of what we're going to talk about in the rest of this episode relates to something called nocioception. So, nocioception is a particular type of Uh, sensory detection set of mechanisms, I guess you could say, that the body uses to detect both internal and external injuries or uh, potential disruptions to to tissue in various ways. But it's important to understand that nocioception is not the same thing as pain. We'll get into more details of how that works in a moment, but nocioception often results in pain, but it isn't the same as pain. So nocioception is a way for the body to detect noxious stimuli. So noxious stimuli are stimuli... Or, you know, experiences that are potentially harmful or damaging. So that relates to the idea we just mentioned before about the fact that pain is associated with potential or actual tissue damage, right? And that makes clear its connection to nocioception. But again, it isn't the same as nocioception. And there's very strong evidence that nocioception, that is the activation of these particular receptors, is neither necessary to produce pain nor is it sufficient to produce pain. So you can have activation of these receptors and not feel any pain. You can also have pain without activation of these receptors. So there is a bit of a puzzle there about the connection of these two, and that's some of the, something we'll talk about over the course of the rest of this episode. Another thing that we should talk about is what what is the point of pain? Like why do we have it? Pain is something that motivates an individual to withdraw from a damaging situation or potentially harmful stimuli. Also, it helps to protect the damaged part of the body while it heals. So we have a natural instinctive response to cradle or guard damaged areas or parts of their body that are experiencing pain. That's a mechanism to protect from further damage and to help it to heal. Usually pain will resolve when the noxious stimulus is removed and the body healed, although there are types of pain, particularly chronic pain, which persists despite the removal of the stimulus and apparent full healing of the body. There's also types of pain that emerge even in the absence of any apparent stimulus or damage or disease. Uh, these forms of pain are particularly clinically relevant because they uh, result in quite a significant um, deterioration or quality of life for you know the patients experiencing them, and they, they serve, as far as we can tell, no uh, useful biological purpose. Now, having introduced the idea of pain, remember it's a subjective experience, often but not necessarily caused by the activation of nociose uh, receptors. Let's talk about some different types of pain, which will also help us understand this distinction a bit more. So the most kind of basic or easiest to understand type of pain is nociceptive pain. So this is pain caused by stimulation of sensory nerve fibers. Uh, these nerve fibers are embedded in what well, really throughout the body, but particularly in the skin. And um, when these fibers respond to relevant stimuli, we'll talk a bit about the types of stimuli later, but, you know, standard sort of cutting or uh, excessive pressure or bruising and other things. Uh, then that often uh, in healthy individuals leads to the perception of pain. Now, although nociceptors, as I mentioned, are disproportionately found in the skin and therefore are responsive to external uh, types of stimulation, there are also nociceptive fibers found throughout the body. In well, not in necessarily, but surrounding and nearby to ligaments, tendons, bones, blood vessels, muscles, and other organs, and this uh, pain that is triggered by activation of these nociceptors is called deep somatic pain uh, and often feels uh, gives rise to a sensation of sort of dull aching poorly localized pain superficial somatic pain which is that which is caused by activation of nociceptors near the skin or other superficial tissue by contrast is sharp and well defined and clearly located So again, this is the difference between pain that has a very clear sort of external source and pain that sort of comes internally from from somewhere that's often harder to localize, but both nevertheless still caused by activation of nociceptive uh, receptors. So that's the first type of pain, nociceptive pain, and that's, I think, what most people think about typically when they think about pain, but that's only one type of pain. There's also neuropathic pain. Now this is pain that's caused by damage or disease to the nervous system itself. So contrast that with nociceptive pain where there is tissue damage or disease of some form, but the nervous system, those nerve fibers are doing what they're supposed to do, right? Their job, their purpose is to detect the noxious stimuli that have caused that damage and then essentially to report that to the central nervous system, which then leads to generally the perception of pain. But neuropathic pain is different because it is caused by the nervous system itself not functioning correctly or some sort of disease or injury to the nervous system. A very simple example of this is when you bump your funny bone and you get that sort of weird tingling. Uh, stabbing feeling, uh, that's neuropathic pain. Of course, it's a fairly mild form because it's um, basically just banging your nerve there and uh, there's no real lasting damage typically. Uh, But but that's an instance of that sort of feeling that you get when something's gone wrong with the nervous system. And it's not reporting any actual tissue damage, it's reporting something having gone wrong with the nervous system. But more extreme forms of that can be caused by various neurodegenerative disorders or um, other problems affecting the nervous system. And so this is often described as burning, tingling, stabbing, or pins and needles type of pain. Moving on to a third type of pain, psychogenic pain. This is one of the hardest types of pains to understand. Uh, This is also called somatoform pain, and it's pain caused or prolonged or increased by mental, emotional, and behavioral factors. Typically, psychogenic pain occurs without any particular clear observable uh, tissue damage, either to the nervous system or to um, any other part of the body. So it's not neuropathic and it's not nociceptive pain. Or if it is, the the pain that's felt is far in excess of what would be justified by those factors. This type of psychogenic pain often is stigmatized uh, because there's an idea that the pain is sort of not real. And although the tissue damage might not be real, that doesn't mean the pain isn't real, right? So this is an important aspect of what we talked about before, that nociception isn't the same as pain. You can have pain without nociception and you can have nociception without pain, as we'll get to a bit later. So there's nothing unreal about psychogenic pain. However, it may be the case that the source of the pain that the patient identifies or the way the patient describes the pain may not necessarily be accurate in terms of the actual source of the pain. Uh, Classic examples of this sort of pain include headaches, back pain, and stomach pain. Of course, not that those are always psychogenic, right? But they're uh, very commonly ways that psychogenic pain is expressed or or, are descriptions that patients use to describe their pain. But especially this sort of pain, it's really very unclear why uh, this happens. It seems likely that it is due to some sort of uh, dysfunction at the central level, at the central brain mechanism level. So basically, um, you know, somewhere in the cortex, rather than at the level of you know peripheral nerves. But this type of pain is still very poorly understood and is probably one of the contributing factors behind some forms of chronic pain that can't otherwise uh, be identified with any particular organic source. Now, the last type of pain that I wanted to talk about here is sometimes omitted, but I think is very important. And this is uh, sometimes called psychological pain or mental or emotional pain. I don't think mental or emotional pain are good ways to put it because all pain is mental and emotional. Psychological is probably the best we can do here, even though you might say, well, isn't all pain psychological? But I think it emphasizes the psychological origins of this type of pain. Note that this is different from psychogenic pain. Again, it's a little unfortunate that the names are so similar. But psychological pain is not pain that appears to originate from somewhere in the body, like a headache or back pain that doesn't seem to have any particular cause due to tissue damage. Psychological pain isn't that, right? That's psychogenic pain. Psychological pain is, it's been described as mental suffering uh, or mental torment, uh, mental hurt that originates from sort of an experience as a human being. So this is the sort of negative emotional and mental experience that characterize um, certain types of mental disorders, for example, depression and anxiety disorders. Borderline personality disorder is commonly associated with extreme levels of emotional distress and pain and psychological pain. So This is a form of pain that doesn't seem to really have any connection to nociception or the peripheral nervous system at all, uh, but nevertheless is a real and important form of pain, uh, but may have quite different mechanisms um, from other types of pain as well. So we need to be careful there about use of labels. But it is nevertheless important, uh, although it might be difficult to exactly demarcate some some cases it is important to keep in mind the different types of pain and the fact that we're using one label to refer to many different things so nociceptive pain is pain that's caused by stimulation of uh, peripheral sensory nerve fibers and that's typically what most people think about i think at least at you know at at the first outset when they talk about pain it's also what we have most evidence about and what most of what we're talking about henceforth will be Uh, focused on, although not exclusively. Then there's neuropathic pain, which is caused by damage or disease to the nervous system itself, so like pins and needles when you bump your funny bone. Psychogenic pain is caused by uh, some sort of central dysfunction, which leads people to attribute pain to peripheral sources, even though there's no actual tissue damage in those places. There's no nociceptive input, but nevertheless, pain is still experienced. And psychological pain, which is not really felt as or attributed to any part of the body but it's more sort of feeling mental suffering as a human being like in terms of anxiety depression and other mental illnesses although you don't have to experience obviously mental illness those are just more extreme forms you know so so this would be also even associated with things like losing a loved one or um you know grave disappointment or or feeling of extreme grief and the pain associated with that that's psychological pain all right so having outline some of the different types of pain, let's now talk about nociception a bit more and explain how these um, signals are detected and how they're conveyed to the central nervous system and the brain. So nociceptors are a particular type of neuron. They're called pseudounipolar neurons, which sounds a bit confusing. But basically all that means is that the cell body of the neuron uh, kind of sits off to the side, right? And then you have your uh, dendrites on sort of the one side and the axon on the other side, forming a, kind of like a, a, a straight vertical line, if you like, and the cell body sits off to the side. Th- that's relevant in terms of the, the structure of the of these neurons and where they sit with respect to the, the spinal cord, which we'll get to in a moment. But the important part is that the peripheral branch of, of the axon, so where the dendrites are, um, free nerve endings, protrusions of the cytoplasm essentially, they project out into the skin or around other tissues like ligaments and so forth. And essentially, when there is some type of tissue damage, specialized ion channels will be activated, causing a depolarization of the local membrane, which then, if there's sufficient depolarization and sufficient magnitude, will trigger an action potential which travels down the axon um, and then passes on information to um, further synapse neurons, which we'll get to in a moment. But the important point that I want to make here is that most types of nociceptors just have the input is just essentially uh, bare nerve endings. So this is distinct from many types of neurons that are associated with detecting signals relating to touch or temperature or vibrations and so on, which often have very specialized structures. In the case of nociception, it's mostly just sort of naked nerve endings. And it's really therefore about the particular set of ion channels that are found in those nerve endings rather than specialized cellular structures themselves that that make these neurons specialized to detecting tissue disruption or tissue damage. Typically, however, the nerve endings are quite diverse, and the word is polymodal, which means that they respond to a wide range of different stimuli, including temperature, mechanical pressure, and various chemicals like uh, capsaicin, which gives a burning sensation. So beyond a certain threshold, these receptors will be activated, like beyond a certain threshold of pressure and temperature and so forth, and uh, these nociceptive sensations will be transmitted up to the brain. Now these neurons, as I said, the dendritic projections sit, you know, somewhere near the skin or near uh, other internal organs. In the case of the somatic ones, the cell body itself resides in what's called the dorsal root ganglion. So these are uh, protuberances that kind of poke out the backside of the of the spinal cord. They they kind of project uh, through the vertebra, yeah, if you like. And a ganglion is just a bunch of a bunch of nerve fibers and um, cell bodies kind of packed together these neurons remember i said that it's kind of like the cell bodies off to the side and then you've got the dendrites and the axon sort of in a line next to it well well that's kind of relevant to understanding their structure because the, the cell bodies are sitting in the dorsal root ganglion right uh, you know along the spine and then the input side of them projects out towards the skin and the output side of them projects back into into the spinal cord which again sits, sits inside the the vertebra of the backbone so basically the the point of these neurons is to get the uh, any nociceptive information from the skin or nearby in the skin. and again, this also there's projections towards um, uh, internal visceral systems as well. but let's just talk about the skin here. So it gets the gets the signals from there uh, and, and transmits them when there's a generation of an action potential through to other neurons uh, that it synapses with in the spinal cord. Different neurons pr- uh, project to different layers uh, within the spinal cord, so there's a fairly elaborate structure layered structure of different neurons projecting different places. I'm not going to talk too much about that, but bear in mind there's, an, there's a fairly elaborate structure here. Now, these nocioceptors then synapse with what are called secondary neurons or interneurons that project to um, the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. So that's just the part of the spinal cord where the primary nociceptor, the ones we've just been talking about, synapses with the secondary ones, which then carry the signal up to the brain. So the primary nociceptors detect the signal, but they don't transfer to the brain directly. They fire an action potential through to where they synapse with a secondary neuron in the dorsal horn of the spinal column, and then that carries the signal up to the brain. We'll talk more about that um, Transduction process a little bit more, but first there's a few more things to say about nociception and the receptors. So, one important thing to understand is that there are two main types of nociceptors. I mean, there are many types, right? But there are two sort of big uh, distinctions that, that are often made C fibers and A delta fibers. C fibers have narrow, unmyelinated axons. You may recall that myelination is a process of basically fatty support cells wrapping around the axons of a neuron which helps to transmit the the signal of an action potential faster uh, for further details on that have a look at past episodes that I've done on neurons and the nervous system but the fact that c fibers are unmyelinated and also narrow both of those mean that they're going to transmit their signals much slower than Wider myelinated axons. Basically, being narrower means that essentially there's just uh, there's less room for the traffic to get through, if you like. It's like a narrower road. There's more congestion, to put it crudely. And unmyelinated also slows things down a lot. Whereas A delta fibers are wider and they're myelinated, so they're much much faster. And C fibers project to different layers in the spinal cord compared to in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord compared to uh, A delta fibers. So remember, I talked about there's layers in the spinal cord where different nociceptor neurons project to. Again, don't worry too much about that, but just have some idea that there's a, there's more structure to it there. Now, this is important because this actually gives rise to something that's called sort of first pain and second pain, where typically if you have uh, some sort of tissue damage, there'll be an initial very rapid uh, feeling of, of sort of intense pain. Uh, and that is mediated by the A delta fibers, right? Because they're very fast being myelinated and wide. You get that signal very quickly. And then slightly after that, you have a slower but longer lasting kind of duller uh, perhaps more more throbbing feeling of pain, and that's the the sort of second pain that's coming from the C fibres, uh, because they're narrower and unmyelinated. It takes longer to transmit the signal, so they give rise to two di- distinct sensations. Now, as I mentioned, the sensitivity of a particular nociceptor depends on the population of ion channels that it expresses. And there are dozens of these different types of ion channels. And so they'll be specialized. These ion channels will be be specialized to the detection of specific stimuli, such as excessive cold, excessive heat, excessive pressure, specific types of chemicals like uh, capsaicin or other chemicals that are um, produced or hormones and things that are released as a result of tissue damage. So so there's many different types of um, stimuli that can... um, cause these particular ion channels to basically open allowing, uh, they're generally sodium channels, so sodium ions to flow into the cell across the membrane thereby depolarizing the neuron and causing it to fire an action potential if the depolarization gets to a you know sufficient level. Although, I, I, I mean, I don't know that they're all sodium channels, I just know that many of them are. A single neuron may express many different of these ion channels, which is why single neurons, as I mentioned, the bare nerve endings for these nociceptors, uh, typically are responsive to many different types of stimuli, but a given Ion channel will be specific typically to one particular type of stimulus. There's just many different ion channels will be expressed on a single neuron. Now, of these many different ion channels, which I will not get into details of, there is one that I want to mention. This is called the NAV 1.7 sodium channel, which is found in the peripheral nervous system. And it's attracted a lot of attention because it's been found that mutations in the gene that codes for these ion channels, of course, each ion channel will have. At least one or, or multiple genes that code for that particular those particular proteins. So, so mutations in that particular gene can lead to congenital insensitivity to pain. Now, this is a rare but kind of weird and, and disturbing condition, at least to me, in which you, you still experience normal stimuli from touch or from cold and vibrations, and things like that. So, you know, somato- somatoception is, is normal, uh, but there is no sensation of pain. And also, typically lacking as any response to to the pain. So, you know, if, if I were to touch a hot stove, there'd be a very rapid reflex to to withdraw my hand from the hot stove, and I would also feel painful stimuli. Whereas people with congenital insensitivity to pain may feel the temperature of the stove, but they won't feel pain, and they won't have that reflex to to withdraw their hand, or at least reflexes like that are severely impaired. And uh, this this is why the condition is so dangerous. Uh, very commonly, people with this condition die as children or, or fairly young uh, because of uh, basically tissue damage or other disease that just isn't noticed. Uh, it's very common that they have sores in their mouth from biting their tongue or biting their, the side of their mouth, things like that, that they just don't notice. Um, damage to the eyes is also very common from things getting stuck in the eye that, again, isn't noticed because they don't feel the pain. And at least often, I don't, I don't know if always is, but it's often associated with the um, absence of these NAV or NAV 1.7 sodium channels. So this is a very interesting result, but I, I think it's a bit early to say yet exactly how crucial these receptors are for the, um, or these particular ion channels rather, are for the perception of pain, as we'll explain a bit later. But okay, so we've talked about the different types of uh, neurociceptive fibers and the ion channels that are responsive to different types of stimuli and how they, these fibers transmit the signal through the dorsal root ganglion to the dorsal horn of the, uh, the spinal column. And then they synapse with secondary neurons, which then carry the signal up to the brain. But uh, let's talk a bit more about this signal transduction through these secondary neurons and how the signal is um, sort of transduced and transmitted up to the brain, which is the part of the body that actually feels pain. Again, remember that, I mean, as far as we know, and I think that there's good reason to to think this, that the peripheral nervous system itself doesn't feel anything, right? It detects nociception and it, it detects the stimuli that give rise to nociceptive, Responses and transduces it up to the brain, but it doesn't feel anything. The feeling, the actual pain, which remember is the subjective sensation, comes only when these signals are processed in a certain way by the brain. So here we're talking about the process by which these signals are carried up to the brain, and also a bit about the mod, the way these signals are modulated. Now there are three main tracts, uh, which are basically just bundles of uh, of these secondary neurons or the axons of these secondary neurons that carry these nociceptive signals from the spinal cord up to the brain. And these are called the spinothalamic, spinoreticular, and spinomesencephalic tracts. Now, don't worry if you don't remember those words. I'm not really going to belabor the point. I just wanted to mention them uh, because you might see them sort of in the literature if you're looking into this a bit more. And these pathways carry different types of signals. Remember, I talked about the different layers in the dorsal root ganglion. So there's a connection to that and exactly what type of neurons are carried in which tracts. I'm not going to belabor that point here. It's a bit too hard to explain. Just suffice it to say there's a few different pathways, but all of them involve these secondary neurons that synapse with the actual uh, nociceptive primary neurons themselves. Uh, then carrying the signal up, I mean, in some cases, right from the very bottom of the spinal cord, all the way up to uh, to the brain, where they synapse with, with further neurons. These different tracts here do synapse with different regions of the brain. The spinothalamic and spinal reticular tracts both terminate in the thalamus. So that's a, a fairly low region of the brain, kind of uh, just a little bit above the, the end of the spinal column. And the thalamus, I mean, it does a lot of things, but one of the things that it is known to do is um, sort of provide a way station for a lot of different sensory inputs. So many different types of uh, sensory input initially go to the thalamus, whence the information is then projected to higher regions of the brain. So that's what we see there. However, the third tract that I mentioned, the spino mesencephalic tract, terminates in the midbrain. So kind of goes to a different place instead of the thalamus. And then there's a further set of projections that carry the signals. Yeah, to uh, regions like the amygdala and the hypothalamus so wh- the the point to be made here the lesson to draw from that is that there are different pathways that can carry these nociceptive neuro- signals to different parts of the brain and already here we're sort of seeing some of the complexity in it because it's not like that there's just the pain center of the brain that all these signals go to and they there you feel pain it doesn't work like that the signals go to different parts of the brain and then they're projected into even further parts of the brain so it's already quite a complex picture and when we talk about central processing mechanisms we'll complicate that even further. However, the spinal column isn't just a sort of passive relay station or uh, like a highway. I mean, it does serve as that, but it does a lot more than that as well. It's involved in actively modulating the strength of these nociceptive signals. Indeed, most of the neurons in the dorsal horn, remember that's where the the primary nociceptive neurons project to, that's sort of um, where they end and then the the secondary interneurons that go up to the brain start. Uh, But most of the neurons there actually aren't even doing that, right? They're, They're actually Local interneurons, which inhibit the activity of uh, secondary dorsal horn neurons that receive into- from the nociceptors. So there's these um, very interesting gate mechanisms that that have been found, where basically you have this system where there there's sort of multiple modulations that go on. First of all, there are interneurons that are inhibitory, right? So uh, that means that if you if these inhibitory neurons are activated by whatever source, we'll get to that in a moment. But if they're activated, then when they synapse with uh, say the nociceptive neurons they will downregulate them or they will reduce their activity so therefore they will reduce the intensity or the the frequency of the signal sent up to the brain so that's what a lot of these sort of local inhibitory interneurons are doing that reside in the in the dorsal horn but also you might ask well where do they get their input from like how do they know when to be in when to be inhibitory, when do they inhibit the, these um, nociceptive signals? And the answer is, again, that there's multiple factors here. One is that there are top down mechanisms. So so these modulatory interneurons receive signals from the brain via the thalamus. So this is top down control, which serves as a mechanism by which pain can be regulated or modulated by top down signals. So it's not all bottom up. It's also top down. There's there's uh, inhibitory neural, uh, inhibitory signals sent from the brain and affected locally by these local interneurons in the spinal column. It, which is really interesting because it's it's not just an issue that top-down mechanisms can affect sort of how you process the pain or how you experience it, but it actually affects the very signals that are sent up there in the first place. So this is a very interesting phenomenon. But it's not just that. There's also Another phenomena which is related to the fact that there appears to be local inhibitory bottom-up interactions, whereby if you have, because remember it's not just nociception, there's lots of other neurons there as well that are uh, responsive just to ordinary kind of um, you know somatosensation, touch and pressure and so forth types of stimuli, but but don't transmit nociceptive signals. It appears that in many cases when those are activated, they actually through these local inhibitory interneurons actually inhibit the uh, activity of, of secondary neurons that are Carrying the signals up, up to the up to the brain. So basically, what that means is that when you have normal, normal kind of um, non-painful stimuli uh, in a particular region, that helps to inhibit the painful stimuli from that region uh, through these local inhibitory neurons. And, and this is actually quite a familiar experience, right? So this is, you know, if you bang your hand or something like that, you'll typically rub it, or you might shake it, or something like that. And and this is a phenomenon whereby it, it appears to be a way of dulling the actual pain signals by activating the non-painful signals, which then inhibit the painful uh, stimuli there. I I don't know exactly what the hypothesized purpose of this is, um, but it's a very interesting example of how the spinal column and the the nerves therein are actively processing the signals. So integrating bottom-up painful signals, but also bottom-up inhibitory signals with top-down inhibitory signals coming from the brain. So it's all quite interesting and more complicated than you might initially think. But then I'm going to add another spanner to the works here and talk about another important aspect of modulation of pain, which is the function of opioids. So you've you've likely heard of opioids before. Uh, an opioid refers to any substance that can activate opioid receptors. It's a wide range of substances, um, including both endogenous and exogenous substances. So basically um, there are substances that sort of do that naturally. And then there are substances that come from outside the body that that activate these receptors. And typically that's what people mean when they're talking about opioids is exogenous substances such as morphine. But there are also endogenous opioids such as endorphins, which are going to produce naturally within the body to activate these receptors. Now, what are opioid receptors? Well, they're receptors on the membrane of a cell, which are a particular type of Receptor called a G protein coupled receptor. If you would like to learn more about that, you can have a look at uh, one of the recent episodes, which was episode 118, cell signaling, where I talk a bit about G protein coupled receptors. So I won't go into the detail of that now. But the point is that an opioid receptor is just it's it's kind of just like many of the other receptors that we have in our body that uh, that trigger an intracellular response in, in in response to some particular extracellular signal. In this case, an opioid molecule, whatever whatever that might be. Again, there's many types of uh, these molecules. Now, opioid receptors are found both in the central nervous system, so in the brain itself, and also uh, in the peripheral nervous system elsewhere in the body. Peripheral opioid receptors are known to influence or potentiate the activity of inhibitory interneurons. So basically what they do is these um, peripheral opioid receptors, when they're activated by opioids they help to boost the activity of inhibitory interneurons so these are the interneurons that i mentioned that are actually the majority of cells uh, neurons in in the spinal column it's it's not the actual nociceptor cells or the secondary cells sending the signal up to the brain but it's these other inhibitory ones that are kind of modulating the effect there so many of these have opioid receptors in them uh, which when activated help to reduce the activity uh, of the interneurons and therefore it effectively diminishes or reduces the uh, intensity or frequency of the N- no signals being sent up to the brain. So this is why opioids are typically used as analgesics because they can reduce the uh, signals that are then sent to the central nervous system interpreted as pain. But it's also more complicated than that because central opioid receptors in the brain also appear to induce analgesia uh, by inhibiting cortical processing of pain as well as activating those descend- descending inhibitory fibres that I mentioned. So there's there's so many things going on here in the modulation of pain. There's the extent to which the nociceptors are active just based on external stimulus or, you know, internal uh, dysfunction in the organs or tendons. Then there's the extent to which that is being modulated by the activation of, you know, ordinary non-painful stimuli, which, as I said, through these gating mechanisms, inhibits the nociceptor signals. Then there's the extent to which those um, uh, nociceptor signals are modulated through top-down mechanisms, including opioid receptor-based mechanisms As well as other non opioid based um, top down inhibitory uh, mechanisms. And then that's before we even talk about the effects of sort of emotion and cognition on the central processing of the nociceptive stimuli itself. So you can see that it's all a very complicated story, and it's not just a simple story of, oh, there's a nociceptive signal that's detected, it sends a signal to the brain, we feel pain. There's a lot more processing and integration, top down and bottom up, that goes on uh, in the spinal column before we even get to. The brain. All right, but having said that, let's start talking about the brain and the central mechanisms of pain. So remember, all that we've been talking about so far, with respect to nociception, with respect to opioid receptors, with respect to inhibitory interneurons and the uh, primary and secondary neurons and all that. None of that is actually pain itself. This is just the transmission of nociceptive signals of varying intensities and different sorts to different parts of the brain. The brain itself is is the region where these signals are processed in a particular way to give rise to the sensation of pain. So you might be wondering, well, what part of the brain does that? And I've kind of indicated this before, but although there have been quite a few studies now looking at this from the point of view of um, lesion studies, where they look at people who have damaged regions of the brain, as well as neuroimaging studies, functional neuroimaging techniques like positron emission tomography and functional magnetic resonance imaging, None of these methods have really been able to identify any particular region that is very specifically, like only active during pain and not during non-painful stimuli, so that there isn't like a pain center of the brain. That being said, there are some regions that are disproportionately more active during perceptions of pain than at other times. and some of the main regions here include the insular cortex, the anterior cingulate cortex, the amygdala, as well as various parts of the prefrontal cortex. So the amygdala is a subcortical structure that is particularly associated with fear responses, uh, as well as negative emotional reactions. So that is not at all surprising that that's involved in pain uh, sensation. These other two areas, insular cortex and anterior cingulate cortex. Uh, Don't worry too much if you don't really know where those regions are. Um, They're just parts of the outer cortex, so the the folded outer region of the brain. they seem to be particularly important. the The insular cortex appears to uh, be a region in which there's integration of the emotional and cognitive aspects of the pain. However, one sort of spanner in the works is that if you directly electrically stimulate these regions, such as the again the anterior cingulate cortex or the insular cortex, you rarely elicit painful stimuli. I mean, sometimes you do, right? But w- when you electrically stimulate other regions of the brain, you'll often elicit particular sensations of stimuli, like having been touched in a particular place or having a particular smell or seeing a particular object. Um, but when you activate these parts of the brain, you don't typically get pain. So it seems that activation of these regions, or at least non-specific activation, isn't uh, sufficient for pain. Of course, our methods of intervening through direct electrical stimulation are quite crude and primitive, so maybe we just sort of don't know how to do it in the right way. Furthermore, there have also been studies that show that regions like the insular cortex and anteriorly cingulate cortex still show activity both in healthy controls and also in subjects who have congenital insensitivity to pain, even though the latter don't have any experience of pain uh, when the activation was was measured. So it's a little unclear what these regions are doing. They do seem to be important in the processing of pain stimuli, but they don't seem to be sufficient for for pain. Activating them doesn't necessarily generate pain, and people with congenital insensitivity to pain have these regions activated but don't feel the pain. So there's some missing ingredient here, it seems, that we don't understand yet. There's a few other issues. um, And remember, I talked before about the fact that nociception is not the same thing as pain and nociception is, is neither necessary nor sufficient for pain. I've already talked about congenital insensitivity to pain as occurring, particularly when certain types of these ion channels are missing in in nociceptor neurons, and that leads to the absence of normal painful responses in, in those who experience this condition. However, case studies have shown that such people can experience some forms of pain, such as headaches as well as neuropathic pain. Remember, neuropathic pain is that which originates from damage to the nervous system itself. And I assume, although I've not been able to find direct evidence for this, but I assume that such people would also be able to experience uh, psychological pain or mental pain. And so it, it seems that they can experience some forms of pain, even though they don't have functional nociception. Furthermore, there's also the phenomenon of phantom limb syndrome. So this is where you have someone who has a particular part of the body amputated, such as a limb typically. Often show normal nociceptor activity as well as continual perception of pain from that region, even though there's no limb present, and even if there's even in cases where there's severing of the spinal cord, so all of the relevant neurons don't exist anymore like they've, they've been they've been amputated, but they otherwise show normal nociceptor activity like in other parts of the body and and they're still feeling pain that they identify as coming from you know parts of the body that they don't even have anymore. So it's clear that pain does not always originate from nerve endings in the stump, because this was an original postulate when when this phenomenon of phantom limb syndrome, where people can still feel not just pain, but the positioning of their limbs or the, that you've touched their limb or something like that, even though they don't have the limb anymore. This postulate was that, well, maybe it's coming from nerve endings in the stump. But this, as I said, the phantom limb syndrome and feelings of pain from the phantom limb occur even in the presence of local anesthesia and even cases of severing of the spinal column, which which should eliminate the possibility of any feeling coming from the stump. So it seems that Phantom Limb syndrome is not driven by peripheral input, that pain is being generated at some way at the central level. So this combination of the continued presence of some forms of pain in congenital insensitivity to pain as well as continued pain in the absence of any peripheral input in the case of phantom limb syndrome both indicates that nociceptive input is not necessary for pain conversely on looking at it from the other side analgesics and anesthetics can block pain perceptions even without directly inhibiting the function of nociception and i mean we just talked about that before right you've got got this top down input from the nervous system which can inhibit the um actual transduction of these nociceptive signals to the brain. You've also got the modulatory effect of opioids and and other hormones and neurotransmitters as well. So you can have nociceptive input with no pain perception, and you can have pain perception without nociceptive input. So they're clearly not the same thing. They're dissociable. As I've said, there appear to be particular brain regions such as insular cortex and anterior cingulate cortex and the the amygdala, which are preferentially active during perceptions of pain in healthy subjects, but they're also active in people who have congenital insensitivity to pain. So it's not like that they're sufficient to generate uh, perceptions of pain. So where does all this leave us? I mean, where is the pain coming from, in a sense? It seems that it's not directly coming from nociception. We've just looked at the evidence for that. And uh, it doesn't seem to come from any particular region of the brain, although there are some that are sort of more suspect than others. Um, But at at this point, unfortunately, there just isn't a very satisfactory answer to this. Uh, We don't have enough understanding of how all of these signals uh, from the the nociception, as well as other sources, are being integrated in the brain to generate a, a painful percept. So in response to some of these issues, uh, some researchers have postulated that, look, maybe this one word pain is actually not the best way to think about it. Pain may not be a unified concept, there may be a bunch of different things going on here. And one sort of easy illustration of this is simply that at the outset, when I talked about four different types of pain, maybe all of these different types of pain are actually, although they may have some sort of experiential um, facets in common, like they may feel similar in some respects. Uh, may be generated by very different neural substrates or by very different mechanisms. So perhaps we shouldn't even use the same word to describe them, at least at a kind of a biological level. Another way to look at this is uh, an influential decomposition that identifies three different aspects of pain, which have been labeled sensory discriminative, affective motivational, and cognitive evaluative. So just to break that down a bit, the sensory discriminative aspect is probably the most, again, uh, easiest to understand or the most uh, relatable aspect of, of of pain. It relates to the form, the texture and the sort of direct feeling of, of what the pain is like. So, you know, whether it's a burning, stinging, throbbing or other type of pain. And also... Um, Whereabouts it appears to come from the body, uh, you know whether it's you know your thumb or your foot, and that appear to be hurting. So, so this aspect of it, right, the sensory discriminative part. But that's absolutely not the only aspect of pain. So then we look at the affective, motivational aspect of pain, which relates to the emotional aspects of pain, including aversive reaction to pain, motivational desire to end the sensation, aspects of fear or foreboding, and so forth that we have with respect to pain or um, expectation of pain. And those things aren't the same as the sensory discriminative aspect, right? Um, You know the the aversive reaction to pain and and desire to end the pain isn't the same thing as the burning sensation of the pain, right? Or the feeling that the pain is coming from a particular part of the body. So that's the idea of this distinction. And the last of these uh, aspects of pain is the cognitive evaluative element, and this relates to how pain is attended to. So attention, you know, what I'm attending to, what I'm not, uh, and also how the person evaluates their experience. You know, so some people may catastrophize and that sort of makes them attend more to the pain and that then elevates the sort of extent to which they actually perceive it and, and the whole thing kind of spirals out of control, whereas other people- May not be attending to the pain. There may be other sense uh, sensations uh, that sort of uh, subsume that. And an example of this could be um, both athletes and uh, wounded soldiers have have reported that they don't, when there's an injury, they don't necessarily immediately feel anything. Possibly because of the adrenaline and the sensory overload of the situation. Uh, only afterwards, when that sort of, uh, when those aspects are less salient, then they actually feel the pain. So, so that may be related to the cognitive evaluative component of pain as well as recognition, you know, that I am in pain, right? And, you know, I can experience this now. And that might seem a bit, I don't know, a bit um, woolly perhaps, but there is an important component between a sort of a, a mere dull re- indication that you're experiencing something and sort of attending to it and being aware of the fact that you're experiencing something. So, I mean, a very simple example of this is the fact that you can, s- that many different objects and and, and sort of Uh, colors and textures will be part of your visual field currently so in a sense you're seeing them but most of them you're ignoring like you're not actually paying attention to them and even without moving your eyes you can sort of pay attention to this object or that object uh, in your field of view and sort of attend to it process it think about it. it again even without even looking at it right i'm just talking about attending to an aspect of your visual field so this would be again part of the cognitive evaluative component which is especially for humans very important in the way that we experience things The key aspect of uh, this trichotomy here is that these different aspects of pain may all be processed by different parts of the brain or different uh, processing mechanisms within the brain. There's no particular reason why we would expect them to all be processed in one single region. This may also explain the different experiences of different people and different types of pain and uh, uh, different people reacting in different ways in different contexts. So the hypothesis here is that these different facets of pain are the result of patterns of activity produced by different local networks in different parts of the brain, which are then integrated through complex interconnections uh, to form a unified percept. But that unified percept doesn't have to necessarily be uh, localized to any particular brain region. So the idea here is that we should sort of focus less on trying to identify a specific brain region that produces the perception of pain entirely by itself. But it might be more useful to think about what Particular processing is being done by particular aspects of uh, particular regions of the brain that's responsible for particular aspects of pain and there are different mechanisms that could potentially be used to investigate this for example, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a technique that's able to selectively inhibit um, or or activate regions of the brain um, temporarily that perhaps could be useful for studying um, which regions of the brain are responsible for particular aspects of pain. It would be interesting for example, if we could produce clear and uh, reproducible Dissociations between some of these different aspects of pain, and uh, thereby understand sort of how some of the facets of pain are sort of produced by different parts of the brain, and look at what the local networks might be doing. But unfortunately, at this point, we just don't have enough information or enough understanding to explain quite how it happens. So, before we end up, I just want to make a couple of more general remarks uh, because I do. Uh, get the feeling that people may be a bit unsatisfied by this episode because I haven't really explained where pain comes from. I've talked about nociception and the different signals and how they're transmitted up to the brain and the different regulatory aspects and opioids and the failure to find a signal brain region that is responsive to pain, but I haven't really explained where it actually comes from, like where does the actual sensation, the the experience come from? As far as I can tell, it comes from the brain, right? So it doesn't come from the peripheral nervous system per se, although it's largely and typically occurs in response to the input from the peripheral nervous system, particularly nociception, but it's actually produced by the brain, but not one specific part of the brain. It's produced by many different regions of the brain uh, interacting in a particular type of way that we haven't been able to figure out yet. Now, uh, one question that we might consider is, why does pain feel like anything, right? Why don't we just have, I mean, clearly we need to be able to detect aversive stimuli, uh, but why does there need to be a feeling that's associated with it? Why doesn't it just sort of elicit the, the right response? I think one partial answer to this is that there are instinctive responses that we have. Um, you know, for example, if you're touching a hot object, you'll instinctively pull back your arm, and that's not something. The signal there doesn't even, uh, I believe, for that reflex, I don't think it has to even go to the brain. It's, um, I think that one, well, at least some reflexes are purely spinal reflexes. I'm not 100% sure about that one, uh, but the point is that we don't need to consciously think about those sorts of reactions. They just, uh, they just happen, right? And so, for things like that, you don't actually need to feel anything, right? But for a lot of experiences, there's no sort of clear one behavioral response that's just sort of always going to be the right one, or almost always, like it is in the case of the hot stove. For a lot of things, it's going to be an issue of we're going to need to sort of think about uh, and process at a cognitive level what the appropriate response is to avoid that situation or to um, to, to help protect from from further damage. And so, it seems that, that there needs to be some sort of more generalized Signal to our that's accessible to our conscious awareness that that we can then respond to in a deliberative way. I mean, and this is probably true for other animals as well, right? Although perhaps at a reduced level because they have a you know reduced capacity for uh, integrative reflective thought, but you know they still have some capacity for that. Although the extent to which other animals experience pain in the way that humans do is is a is a controversial and difficult issue. But I'm I'm not going to talk about that here, other than just to say that remember, pain is defined as a subjective. Uh, sensory and emotional experience. And therefore, um, in some sense, no amount of comparing the nociceptive pathways can directly tell you uh, whether another type of organism is experiencing pain. And that's a major limitation of, of current methodologies. But anyway, um, the point there is that it it seems that the role of pain may be to provide some sort of more generalised signal that's accessible to our awareness and at an emotional level as well, that then prompts us to respond to that. And I suppose you could still ask, well, yeah, but couldn't there be such a sort of signal that still doesn't feel like anything? Uh, And at that point, uh, again, this this really moves us into the realm of philosophy rather than than science. But at least I would say, well, look, it seems that all of our other sensations are at least when we're consciously sort of attending to them, you know, sight, sound, touch, and so forth. Uh, I mean, they all feel like something. They feel like different things, of course, because they're different, but they all feel like something. There's a sort of a qualia to them, as the philosophers say. So, it's not really clear that why pain would be different in that respect. And perhaps there's nothing more to say about it other than, look, it just turns out that when you are an organism with a, a nervous system operating in such and such a way, then there just is such a thing that it feels like to be that to be that system. I mean, it's sort of no more obvious that there should be something that it feels like than that there shouldn't be, right? I mean, why would you think either way that there should be a thing that it feels like to be in pain versus not a thing that it feels like to be in pain? So, I think that we can understand why we need more than just mere re- reflexive responses to pain, and that's why there maybe needs to be something more sort of uh, more sort of generalized signal that we can respond to. In terms of why, why does that feel like something, uh, it seems that there's not much that we can say at this point other than, well, sensation just turns out to feel like something when you're that sort of thing. Perhaps one could build organisms that behave similarly but didn't have any sort of experience, but we don't really know that. And- uh, that's something that perhaps it will take a long time to figure out. Although I suspect that if you try to build anything that even works remotely like a human in terms of the internal operation, that it will feel like something to be that thing. And so therefore it would be capable of experiencing pain. Although as we know, there are weird cases like congenital insensitivity to pain and like referred pain where people experience pain in different parts of their body to where the stimuli actually comes from or in cases of phantom limb syndrome. So there are interesting cases there that uh, I think cause us to rethink some of our maybe uh, preconceptions about how pain works. But anyway, that's enough speculation for now. Hopefully you found this episode interesting, if maybe not entirely uh, satisfying in all respects. If you enjoyed the show, then uh, feel free to join the Facebook group uh, where I provide uh, updates about the show periodically and links to new episodes when they're released. Uh, so, you can find that by going onto Facebook and just searching for the Science of Everything podcast. Also, I appreciate if anyone is able to give the podcast a favorable review on iTunes or whichever aggregator you use for the show. That does help to spread the word about it. If you would like to contribute financially to the show, then uh, feel free to go to the Patreon, uh, which you can find uh, in linked in the show notes or just Google that. Uh, or you can make a one-off donation via PayPal as well. Everything is much everything that I receive from my listeners is gratefully appreciated and it helps me to devote some more time to the show. If you'd like to send an email to me asking a question or making a suggestion or anything else, just tell me about how you listen. I always love to hear feedback from my listeners. My email address is fods12 at gmail.com. That's F-O-D-S-1-2 at gmail.com. Thanks very much for listening and I'll talk to you next time.